Yes, welcome to week 13 uh, of our series through the Gospel of John. I'd love you to turn uh, there to the bit in between chapter 7 and chapter 8. Yeah? Or just turn to chapter 8 and you'll, you'll fall into it. Uh, Andrew, I'm going to ask you to just lift the volume ever so slightly so I can uh, not speak so loud. Um, I've uh, said it to you so often in this series that you are probably bored with it and me, but that's just fine. Um, The opening 18 verses of the Gospel of John function as a prelude, yes, uh, to the whole work. And like a good musical prelude, uh, the first 18 verses of John um, capture all of the grand motifs that resound through the rest of this uh, biography of Jesus' life. And one of the most important themes of the Gospel of John, and therefore in the prelude, is that Jesus came to embody the truth, the inner logic of the Old Testament itself, or what you might call the Jewish scriptures. If I can put it like this, Jesus is the full disclosure of the truth and grace at the heart of the Old Testament. Here's how the prelude puts it in the final lines of the prelude. Chapter 116, out of his fullness, that's Jesus, we have all received grace in the place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. Notice uh, John doesn't say Jesus offered grace in contradiction to the Old Testament. Very important to spot this because it lights up the rest of the gospel. He says uh, Jesus brought the fullness of the grace that had already been given. And that grace that had already been given is the law of Moses. The law of Moses was a grace. Jesus brought the grace that comes out of and in place of that grace. But it's grace already there. And we've already seen this in countless ways through John's gospel. For instance, uh, Jesus' habit of healing people on the Sabbath day, uh, he makes the point consistently that this is in perfect accord with the Old Testament thesis that the Sabbath is God's gift for the benefit of humanity. So it makes no sense that you can't benefit humanity on the Sabbath day. That's a great argument. His teaching is not contrary to the Old Testament. He brings out the inner logic of the Old Testament. He brings the grace upon the grace. It's the full disclosure. And then there's the way Jesus has consistently talked about coming to fulfill the Old Testament festivals. And we've seen in particular two festivals, the Passover, which was the sacrifice of the lamb, the atoning death of a lamb, was, Jesus said, a picture of him giving his own body and blood for the world to atone, bear the penalty for sin in our place. And then last week, if you remember, he's the fulfillment of the Tabernacles Festival. The Tabernacles Festivals were a great water festival, and Jesus said that he came to bring the life-giving water, which is his spirit. After he is raised to life, he pours out his spirit and fulfills the Tabernacle Festival. 
Today, we're going to see another classic example of the grace and truth Jesus gave the world, not in contradiction to the Old Testament, but in fulfillment of the Old Testament. Today, we're going to be looking at one of the best-known incidents in Jesus' life, where he showers grace and truth on a woman caught in the act of adultery. The mind boggles how they pulled that off. And he famously says to her accusers that the one who is without sin cast the first stone. Those classic words. So that's what we're going to study today. But first, we need to do a little bit of history. And in particular, a little sub-discipline of history known as textual criticism. Glance down at the bit between John 7 and John 8. And uh, what's the first thing you notice about the passage? It's marked off. No, it's not dodgy, Bill. It's marked off from the surrounding text by lines above and below. Okay? And then you notice that the text is in microscopic italic print. We should have brought magnifying glasses today to help. What's more, our printed Bibles interrupt John's Gospel with a, a notice to readers that is perhaps a little unsettling for some. Did you see it there? It says, the earliest manuscripts and many other ancient witnesses do not have John 7, 53 to 8, 11. A few manuscripts include these verses, wholly or in part, after John 7, 36, John 21, 25, Luke 21, 38, and Luke 24, 53. What on earth is going on? <laughs> well, this is one of two passages in our Gospels where there is very strong doubt that this was ever part of the original uh, New Testament. Very strong doubt. Uh, the other passage, by the way, is the last few paragraphs of Mark's Gospel, which is not so much a story about Jesus as a summary of what the apostles did after Jesus' resurrection. But here's the thing, it's quite easy to explain if you just sort of follow the logic and just, just hold in mind a couple of very basic historical principles. We have well over 50 ancient manuscripts of John's Gospel. The true number is closer to 100, but I'm going to play it really conservative today and just say more than 50. Now, just soak that up for a second, because very few texts you have ever heard of from the ancient world have anywhere near 50 manuscripts. Not uh, Plato, uh, not uh, Josephus, not Philo, not Tacitus, not uh, Suetonius, and so on, right? 50 is an awful lot. And with so many New Testament manuscripts, it's much easier to spot variations in the copying process. Usually it's just a word here and a word there, or a line here or a line there. But in this case, it's a major variation of a couple of paragraphs long. This story of the woman caught in adultery appears in about 15 of the more than 50 ancient manuscripts of John's Gospel. The vast majority of manuscripts, and by the way, the earliest and best of our manuscripts, don't contain this story. And the other weird thing is where this story does appear in our manuscripts, it sort of travels a bit. So usually in the 15 manuscripts that have this story, 
it's, uh, most often it's here in between chapters 7 and 8. But it actually also appears at the very end of John's Gospel as like an appendix. And it also appears in Luke's Gospel in two different spots. So something strange is going on here. And um, by the way, uh, the scribes who copied out this story often put an asterisk in the margin to say, not 100% sure about this one. The other really weird thing is in some of the manuscripts that don't have this story, there's an asterisk to mark something missing. Ooh, it's, well, okay, for historians, this is really cool. It's pretty clear that John, the author of the gospel, did not write this passage. Very clear. Let me quote from the chair of the committee that collates the ancient manuscripts and produces the Greek New Testament from which all the modern translations are made. Here's what the committee ruled. The evidence of the non-Johannine origin of the pericope, or let's just say paragraphs, of the adulteress is overwhelming. The committee was unanimous that the pericope was originally no part of the fourth gospel. So you might be sitting there going, okay, so what's it doing there? And why bother ever reading it out in church? And John, why are you about to preach a whole sermon on it? Yes, good question. Good question. The answer is, most scholars, including this committee (laughs) that deals with all the manuscripts, is very confident it's a genuine historical remembrance of Jesus' actual life that floated in oral tradition, like many, many other stories, except this one happened to be written down at some point, and a scribe who didn't want it lost forever put it in somewhere in the Gospels, and then somehow it got copied, but got copied with asterisks and in different places in the Gospels. Here's the committee's actual judgment about that side of the equation. At the same time, The account has all the earmarks of historical veracity. It is obviously a piece of oral tradition which circulated in certain parts of the Western church. We know that because it's in Western manuscripts that we find the story. And which was subsequently incorporated into the various manuscripts at various places. In other words, what we have here is a genuine story of the historical Jesus which John didn't write but which some uh, other scribe thought shouldn't be lost to our memory. Now, the delightful thing is, do you remember how John's Gospel ends? By telling us that there are many stories he knows of. This is you know, actually how John ends his uh, Gospel. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. My best guess is this actually prompted some scribe to go, oh, well, this is where I'll make as an appendix the story of the woman, because here's an example of exactly what he said. And then from there it was copied across in, in uh, different places. Sadly, though, most of the stories that were known to the early Christians are gone. We only have the ones that in God's providence he wanted in his actual word uh, to us. But I'm pretty happy that one of those floating stories is preserved for us in a beautiful little historical remembrance almost haphazardly in about 15 manuscripts of, uh, of the Gospels. So how do I sum up my approach to this passage, you know, theologically? Um, I'd put it like this, and this will inform how I preach today. 
This passage doesn't have the status of God's word. Therefore, we couldn't use it to establish a new doctrine. But it is a genuine episode from the life of our Lord, and it offers a perfect historical illustration of ideas we find right across our sacred gospels. The beautiful thing is that there isn't a new doctrine here. It simply historically confirms what we already have. All right. With all that in mind, or perhaps best forgotten, let's now hear from John seven fifty three to eight eleven. Thanks, Glenn. John chapter seven, beginning at verse fifty three. Then they all went home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him. And he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away, one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. The first thing, you may be asking about this passage, is where on earth is the bloke? Really? If they caught the woman in the act of adultery, it says verse 4, in the act, they surely could have got the guy as well. And the law of Moses, the Old Testament tradition itself, said that the man is guilty just as the woman is guilty of adultery. Unlike many other ancient codes, by the way which said the man was scot-free. So already the religious leaders in this story have breached the Old Testament by only grabbing the woman. There is a stinking sexism right here, right up front. And unfortunately, it's something we've already seen in John's Gospel back in chapter 4. Do you remember when Jesus talks with a Samaritan woman? who's had five husbands and is now living with a man, unmarried. And the disciples are troubled that Jesus is talking, it doesn't say to a Samaritan, though that was problematic, it says to a woman. Sexism. Uh, In Lebanon, uh, a couple of weeks ago when I was there, I was confronted by an awful, awful story of sexism. A refugee girl, 13, 
had been raped by a male in Lebanon, fell pregnant, and when she was discovered, she was put in prison and he was uh, let free. After all that she had escaped to then confront that, it was, it was very confronting. But as an aside, um, I'm delighted to tell you that our Aussie aid, I mean literally our government aid, uh, provided her with the legal services. She's now out of prison and she's in an AusAid safe house in Lebanon, being really well cared for. Sexism. I mean, of course, it's not just out there, it's here. But it's certainly here. And what's worse in our story is that these men are really just using the poor woman as a trap. Okay, in fact, it's really quite open there in verse 5. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Yes, and the man, by the way. Now, what do you say, Jesus? Verse 6 says, they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. They wanted to see if Jesus would contradict the law of Moses. It's as simple as that. There's a ruling. It's very clear. What do you say? Right? Deuteronomy 22, Leviticus 20 says the one caught in adultery is to be stoned. And it explicitly says the man and the woman. So what's Jesus going to say? Now, you've got to think about this, right? If he says, nah, Moses was wrong, not only does he provide great grounds for the religious leaders to oppose him and perhaps even arrest him on religious crimes, probably more important, that would contradict so much of what the Gospels say about Jesus, that he'd come not to contradict the Old Testament, but to bring out its inner logic, to be its fulfillment of grace. So what does Jesus do? He takes his time and scribbles in the dirt, as you would. Verse 6, it's, it must be an important thing, because verse 6 says he stooped down and scribbled on the dirt, and then verse 8 again says he delivered his reply, and then he goes back to scribbling in the dirt. Of course, there's much speculation about what this might mean in historical context. Um, some people say he's just stalling to think of a good answer. <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, maybe. I mean, it is a great answer. Yeah, I mean... Let the one without sin cast the first stone. It it became proverbial in English for a reason. It's a great answer. I don't think he's stalling. Maybe uh, he's writing in the dirt the very words he's about to say out loud. In fact, you know, he's actually writing, let the one who is without sin cast the first stone, and then speak it. Because that would be very much like you see in the Old Testament prophets, who often did bizarre public acts before they preached. Uh, So even Ezekiel drew a sketch of Jerusalem, do you remember, on a clay tablet, sketch of Jerusalem, and then he beat it up, right? And then he preached that, that Jerusalem was going to fall. So maybe it's more like that, that would fit the historical context. But the oldest interpretation is my favourite. He's writing down the sins of her accusers in the dirt. Eliezer, ripped off merchant, Shimon cursed a poor beggar. Benjamin committed adultery himself last year. I say that's the oldest interpretation because actually two of the 15 manuscripts that contain this story actually say he wrote in the ground the sins of each of them. Okay. So I'm not saying I know which is the historical reality. I like them all in some ways, but that's a very cool answer. Whichever was the reason he doodled in the ground, his answer is marvellous, isn't it? Verse 7. 
Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Huh. Let's just dwell on what he's saying here and what he isn't saying. He isn't saying Moses was wrong to rule that adultery deserves death. He sure isn't saying that. Adultery is the ultimate betrayal of the most serious vow a human being can make to another. And none of the seriousness of that disappears in the teaching of Jesus. Jesus' point is not that adultery isn't so serious. His point is that there was no one there or anywhere who has the moral purity to carry out God's judgment without complete hypocrisy and perversion. No one has the purity of judgment to be able to enact this punishment. And in this sense, Jesus shares the view in the Old Testament of the profound corruption of the human heart. I'm thinking particularly of Psalm 14, which, by the way, was written about Jerusalem's religious leaders, if you see it in context. The Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. All have turned away. All have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Do all these evildoers know nothing? They devour my people as though eating bread. And Jesus makes a similar point in his Sermon on the Mount, from an authentic part of the Gospels, Matthew 7. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Actually, the resonance between this statement of Jesus in an authentic gospel and the statement here about cast the first stone is, is, is complete. They're basically the same idea. Who could possibly enact God's judgments on another? Given we're all corrupt and sinful. So um, let me put the principle in my own words. If we're all sinners, and if God's judgment of us is shaped to some extent by our judgment of others, who would be willing, who is fit to cast the first stone? The answer is no one. And here's an interesting aside, at least I find it interesting, I hope you do too. Judaism, in the centuries that followed Jesus, ended up adopting basically the same view of the death penalty from the Old Testament. In the centuries that followed, the Pharisees themselves ruled that the Old Testament death penalty, though theoretically valid, could not be justly enacted because we are so sinful. In fact, in the Mishnah, which was written down about the year 200, so 170 years after Jesus, in the Mishnah, which is still a sacred book to all of our Orthodox Jewish neighbors, okay, uh, the, the rabbis in the Mishnah argue that if Israel's ruling council, the Sanhedrin, were to execute someone once in 70 years, that even still would be a murderous, corrupt council. 
And from this has developed a, a strong Jewish tradition amongst Orthodox Jews that those death penalties in the Old Testament aren't to be enacted today, not because they're invalid, not because adultery doesn't deserve death, but because none of us could enact it well, without being a screaming hypocrite. All right. Um, what Jesus says here ends up becoming the Jewish interpretation of the Old Testament. I don't mean Jesus influenced the rabbis, probably didn't, but I think they gained this same insight that Jesus had independently of Jesus because they read their Old Testaments. And you can see already in Jesus' day, it was a pretty effective insight. If you're without sin, go ahead, cast the first stone. At least on this occasion, look at verse 9. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman. We don't know why the oldest ones went away first, but you know the obvious one is they're aware of a larger back catalogue of sins and so they take the point more easily. Maybe, I don't know. All we know is that here is this guilty woman, and let's not forget, she is guilty. Standing before the only one who could have validly punished her. And he chooses not to. He could have stoned her. As confronting as that is. But if we know anything about Jesus from John's gospel, from all the gospels, it's that he came with grace and not to condemn grace. Jesus always takes the generous inner logic interpretation of the Old Testament, of the Jewish law, whether that's about doing good on the Sabbath day or it's his conversation with the Samaritan woman who's had five husbands and now has a live-in lover and he offers her salvation. He's always adopting the grace perspective. Indeed, the whole climax of his mission, the whole point of the Jesus story is that he would come as the Passover lamb and die for our sins. That's how structurally built into Jesus' life grace is. And he rose and pours out his spirit on his people that we might live. So here she is, a sinner like every one of us before the sinless saviour of the world. Wondering what he'll say next. Verse 10. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Those with no right to condemn her tried to. The only one with a right to condemn her chooses not to. Instead, out of his fullness, as the prelude put it, we have all received grace. And she receives grace. Grace. And truth. After all, the prelude said that... He has fully made known grace and truth, and we see it here. The line that 
so many people forget in this story is the last one. You might have thought, I'd just forgotten it. And it too strongly resonates with everything we find in the sacred gospels. Verse 11, last line. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Look at this. Go now and leave your life of sin. Go now and leave your life of sin. We mustn't think for a moment that Jesus disagreed with the Old Testament teaching about sexual sin. He didn't disagree with the Old Testament teaching about sin at all. His message wasn't, hey, we're all sinners, so live and let live, which I know is a kind of cool rendition of what Jesus said that's very popular today. But it's a distortion of what we find in the Gospels and what we find in this historical episode from Jesus' life. The fact that we're all sinners, yes, provides a reason why we mustn't condemn and punish our fellow sinners, yes. But it doesn't mean we're to think of wrongdoing as any less wrong or to think that wrongdoing doesn't deserve God's judgment. That would be a complete perversion of what Jesus taught. Jesus came to fulfill both grace and truth. In fact, I'd put it to you, and I'd ask you to bear with me on the logic of this, you can't actually show grace without true convictions. I mean, you can't show grace without the truth that some things are good and some things are bad. Some things are true and some things are false. Simply giving each other a free pass on our behavior, because, hey, we're all sinners, so live and let live, isn't grace. That's permissiveness. And it's very different from grace. Grace is love and honor despite the fact that you know someone's in the wrong. Someone has sinned. Someone deserves judgment. And grace involves longing for someone to return to the good that they've departed from. What Jesus does in this passage is entirely consistent with everything we find in the Gospels. He brought truth and grace. Not one without the other. Not the other without the one. He said, I do not condemn you. Leave your life of sin. Conclusion. I'll trust that you will forgive me for repeating something I've said many times from this, my happy place. And I think it's my right in these closing weeks to repeat whatever I like. <laughs> I've often said Christians ought to be able to flex the muscles of conviction and compassion at the same time. And I know that's horribly sexist, so we'll remove that and place the lady up there. Christians ought to be able to flex the muscles of conviction and compassion at the same time. Here's the thing. If we take Jesus seriously, we're going to have a ton of hair-raising convictions about what's right and wrong, what's true and false 
about the reality of God, about the sinfulness of human beings, about the coming judgment, about Jesus being the only way of salvation. Real convictions. At the same time, if we take Jesus seriously, he will fill our heads and hearts with compassion. As we remember him in conversation with a Samaritan woman who'd had five husbands and a living lover, and he offers her salvation. As we remember that he gave his life on a cross for us to bear our sins. As we remember that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Compassion. Christians have sometimes flexed one muscle and not the other. And I've said this before too. There are periods in church history that we ought to be ashamed of, where Christians have been all conviction about God and precise theology and sin and no compassion. And it's disgusting, yes. It's a heresy. But there are periods in church history and today when there are Christians who are all compassion and no conviction. It's all live and let live. Jesus loves you just as you are and he's pretty happy for you to stay just as you are. That's a heresy. That, that, that bears no resemblance to the Jesus of the Gospels. The, the real genius of Jesus was precisely the ability to flex the muscle of conviction and compassion at the same time and to do it beautifully to the liberation of many. And I want to make the point that this is not just some arbitrary ethical habit of followers of Jesus. Mm -mm. This is what God is like. This is what Christ as the revelation of God is like. This, frankly, is what our gospel is all about. All about. You could summarize the gospel message as God's conviction that we belong to him, we have defied him, we deserve judgment, and there is judgment coming. And his incredible compassion toward us in sending Christ to die and rise for us to be forgiven, to live eternally, undeservedly. Conviction, compassion. And so I long for us today to see in this historical episode and more importantly across all the scriptures both God's way with us conviction and compassion and our way in the world conviction and compassion neither do I condemn you Jesus said Leave your life of sin. Lord, will you, in your mercy, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to bow before the truth of the gospel, the truth of your word, the truth beautifully illustrated in this wonderful episode from our Lord Jesus. Please work in our lives that we might listen to your truth, that we might receive your grace and then 
live in the world with truth and grace. We ask it in the name of the one who embodies these things, the Lord Jesus, crucified and raised to life.